Turning your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians. If you get to Hebrews, you've gone a little bit too far. Okay, it's right before Timothy, Thessalonians, Timothy, Titus. Uh, just a reminder to folks that the uh, sermon manuscript and outline are um, put online on Saturday. You can print those out, follow along, or follow along on whatever device is working for you. So, we are in 1 Thessalonians 4, and as I said, this is the second to last uh, in our series on uh, the one another commands of the New Testament. Today we'll be looking at the command to encourage one another, but I think it's uh, very different than what you expect, because it was certainly very different than what I expected. Uh, but let's go ahead and read this, 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 13 to 18. 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 to 18, and listen carefully as this is God's word. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is your word, and we need it more than ever. Thank you for giving us the scriptures and making us your people. Lord, today we come to another one of the many one another commands. And this is one that many of us think we do pretty well. And yet we don't think about what this command is really asking of us. So we pray that we would learn from you today, that we would listen carefully, that we would follow the one who enables us to obey this command fully, and who through his spirit makes us people who love to offer words of encouragement to each other. Lord, for the believers here today who are grieving, we pray that you would comfort them. For believers here today who are struggling with doubts about these very questions, we pray that you would strengthen and assure them. And if there are any unbelievers who hear this word and have no sure hope of the life to come, we pray that you would change their hearts, grant them belief in your promises and in your gospel, and then comfort them by your word. Thank you that today we're learning again from the Apostle Paul. Help us to hear his words, understand them, believe them, and obey them. And in so doing, demonstrate our love for your church by encouraging one another. And so we pray, speak through 1 Thessalonians 4 this morning, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, help us see Jesus. For in his name we pray, amen and amen. Well, 
Gotta get used to my glasses getting fogged up again. You know, as I came to this passage um, this week, my first thought was, this may not have been the best one another command to choose. There was lots to choose from. We picked 13 out of about 35 or so. And as I started looking at it, you know, I thought, this command, you know, by and large, we do pretty well as a church. You know, we, we do have bad days. There are times when we simply fail to encourage one another. But then again, as I thought about it, I thought we generally do this well. You know, especially in the time of this ongoing pandemic, there's quite a number of us who've gone to great lengths to encourage others. Now, don't get me wrong. I am sure there are some here this morning in dire need of encouragement. And I'm sure there are some here who are now wondering how they got left out and why they haven't felt encouraged. And I'm sure there are some here feeling a little convicted at how short they fall when it comes to encouraging others in the church. <coughs> Conviction's not a bad thing. You know, however, when I look at the whole church, and particularly how the elders and the deacons have reached out to others. Almost every family in this church has had a visit, a phone call, a Zoom conversation. For a few of you, a really long text exchange. Not my generation, but it is for some of you. In fact, this week, so I was looking at this text, I went through the whole address list, the whole roster of everyone in the church, including all of our regular attenders, and I was able to show a significant contact in the last six months from a church officer with all but seven families in the church. And just because I don't know about it doesn't mean it didn't happen. Well, that's over 90% of the church. And I thought, we're doing pretty well. And then I read the text. 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 to 18. And I realized this text was not telling us what to do. This text already assumes that we encourage one another. It's telling us how to do it, how to do it well, how to do it right, how to do it biblically. And I felt convicted. And like I said, conviction is not a bad thing. So now the apostle Paul wants us to be encouraged. And he very quickly lays out four reasons for us to be encouraged. And he gives these words of encouragement in the midst of our worst moments, for our darkest days, in our uncertain times, and when our hearts are most heavy. And that's what today is all about. That's what this passage is all about. Trying to understand what hope is and what hope we can have when our dreams and loves and our friends and families have died and been buried. If you've lived for any length of time, you've had to bury someone you love. You may have felt the sting of regret, the sorrow of unfinished business, the paralyzing confusion, and the emptiness of loss. 
you may have also found yourself, your, your mind just flooded with questions. What happens? What is life beyond the grave? And in 1 Thessalonians 4, we read the words of the Apostle Paul as he addresses these very concerns to the church in Thessalonica. The very first generation of Christians is beginning to die off. Most of these people had believed that Jesus would return during their lifetime. And now they had questions. Did death mean those who died would miss the second coming of Christ and his reign on the earth? Would these people miss all the glory that had been promised? And this text answers some of those questions. This passage is one of the most popular second coming texts in all the Bible. And it gives us a great picture of that day. But we have to realize this text isn't trying to teach us about the second coming so much as to help us understand the reasons for our hope and to encourage us in that hope in the face of old age, in the face of tragedy, in the face of death. So we have to be careful not to get distracted and focus on what is this text really trying to tell us. And so Paul starts by telling us to be encouraged by his resurrection, encouraged by Jesus' resurrection. That's the first blank in your outline for those who have it. You're following on a device you probably can't fill in the blank so uh, good luck with that um, now I'm pretty sure I'm not the only one uh, who has questions about death if you listen in on any discussion about the return of Christ eventually someone is going to inquire but what about those who've already died what happens to Christians between their death and Jesus return and apparently the church in Thessalonica was asking these questions too. The Thessalonian church had buried uh, her share of loved ones, and Paul wants the members who remain to be at peace regarding the ones who've gone ahead. Now many of you have buried loved ones as well. And just as God spoke to them, God speaks to you. If you'll celebrate a marriage anniversary alone this year, God speaks to you. If your child made it to heaven before kindergarten, he speaks to you. If you lost a loved one to violence, if you learned more than you ever wanted to know about disease, if your dreams were buried as they lowered the casket, God speaks to you. He speaks to all of us who have stood or will stand in the soft dirt near an open grave. And to us, he gives this confident word but we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Now, Paul's contrasting two kinds of people, those who grieve without hope and those who grieve with hope. But notice, both groups grieve. There's nothing wrong with being sad about someone dying. It is a natural, normal, and perfectly appropriate response to loss. And there's never a reason to be embarrassed by tears or by wishing to have someone back who is gone. Paul refers to believers who die as those who sleep. Now, 
Because of this, some people have uh, developed the doctrine called soul sleep. They believe when we die, we go into a state of something like suspended animation, something of an unconscious state until the return of Christ. And at that time, we awaken and are raised from the dead. I do not believe this is what the Bible teaches. Scripture clearly refutes that idea, though it isn't exactly clear what form our bodies do take in this intermediate state between our death and the second coming of Christ. In 2 Corinthians 5, Paul talked about being away from the body and at home with the Lord. He sees a distinction between the body that is buried and the soul that inhabited that body. In Philippians 1, he says, I am hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. So Paul faces his possible execution, and he struggled with whether it would be better to die and be with Jesus, which he says is far better, or to remain alive to labor for the Lord. Now, if death results in soul sleep, that debate is pointless. If we aren't going to be with Christ any sooner, whether we die now or later, then why not remain alive as long as you can? And in Revelation 6, we read about the souls of martyrs who cry out to the Lord during the time of uh, tribulation. And they couldn't do this if they were in soul sleep. It seems evident that when we die, our body is buried, but our soul, who we really are, lives on. Think about it this way. When you physically go to sleep, your body rests, but your mind continues to be active. You dream. You're still aware of sounds, like your alarm clock. You continue to hash over the problems of the day, even as you sleep. And death is something like that. It's not a perfect analogy, but the body's laid to rest, but the soul remains very much alive. It's not dormant. When the thief on the cross was dying uh, next to Jesus, Jesus didn't say, someday you will be with me in paradise. In Luke 23, he said, today you will be with me in paradise. Those who die in Christ go to be with him immediately. Now, there are some who don't believe this at all and who say this is simply wishful thinking. And to them, uh, Paul says, our confidence for these things comes from the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because Christ died, our sin is paid for, we're forgiven. Because Christ was raised, we know there's life beyond the grave. Jesus said, in the words that I begin every funeral with, John 11, 25 and 26, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Our confidence in heaven is based on the strong and reliable testimony of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God and Savior of sinners. Now, the Bible does not teach that everyone gets to heaven. Paul says here in verse 14 that it's through Jesus God will bring with him those who've fallen asleep. These promises are for believers. They're for Christians. Now, I understand that is surely politically incorrect, but that's what Jesus taught. And for believers, there is the bold assurance that death doesn't get the last word, but that the last word belongs to Jesus. And that should bolster our faith. 
Furthermore, after giving this assurance, Paul goes on to tell us to be encouraged by his return. To be encouraged by his return. They're all ours today. It just worked out that way. Verses 15 and 16, to be encouraged by his return. The Bible clearly teaches that Jesus is going to return to earth. It's not a secondary, but a central doctrine. There's lots of passages, here's just two, that point to the return to the second coming of Christ. Acts chapter 1, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. And then in Matthew 24, Jesus' own words, then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. You can add to these verses, 2 Peter 3, the entire book of Revelation, and all of the Old Testament, all of the, certainly the major prophets, Isaiah, Daniel, Ezekiel, whose prophetic passages point to a future day when Christ will reign. And you see that second coming is a cornerstone doctrine of the church. And Paul tells us here in 1 Thessalonians 4 that he is passing on to us a word from the Lord about what's going to take place. This word could have been the teaching of Jesus during his lifetime, from uh, like um, his teaching in Matthew 24. Uh, there could be additional details here that things that Jesus said weren't recorded in the Gospels. It's possible this is a word that was uh, revealed directly to Paul by the Lord. The text just doesn't say how he got it. But this is what it does say, starting at verse 15. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. We learn at least four things from this text. First, those who are living at the time of the return of Christ will not precede those who died. The great day of his coming is going to involve all believers, those who've already died and those who are still living. No believer will be excluded. Second, the Lord will come down from heaven unmistakably. It says there'll be a cry of command with the voice of an archangel and the sound of the trumpet of God. And the picture is that of a bugler in the military summoning the troops. Maybe a, a better picture for some of you would be as a kid, and we have a number of kids here, and you're playing outside, mom came to the door and called out that supper's ready. In either case, people come running. Though a number of moms might dispute that. But in addition to be encouraged by Jesus' resurrection, in addition to be encouraged by Christ's return, we're to be encouraged by our reunion by our reunion, the end of verse 16 and verse 17. I said we learned four things from this text. So these verses give us three and four. Starting at the end of verse 16. And then the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So we will always be with the Lord. So third, believers 
both the dead and the living will be caught up together. Now, in the Latin, the word for caught up together is rapto. And it's from this phrase we get the doctrine called the rapture. But first, all Bible-believing Christians believe in the rapture. In other words, they believe there will be a day when we will be caught up together with Christ. However, there is great division on what that's going to look like and how to understand the rapture. And I don't want us to lose sight of sort of the main context of the passage, which is reasons to be encouraged and to give us hope. But I think you need to understand this term because it is so prominent in bad Christian literature. There are two primary beliefs about the rapture. One group believes that the rapture is going to be a secret event. The Lord will come and suddenly take all the believers from the earth and leave the rest of the world bewildered. And the non-believers who are left behind will face a time of intense persecution called the tribulation, period clearly pointed to in Revelation. And that's going to happen either before it starts or halfway through, depending on your viewpoint. And this is the view proposed by the Left Behind books and many of the prophecy preachers on television. And I will tell you, it is bad and misleading theology and a gross misinterpretation of scripture. Not that I have a definite opinion on it. <laughs> Second group will say the events describe this gathering of saints, also found in Matthew 24 and 1 Corinthians 15, give the impression that this event is going to be anything but secret. We've already told, cry of command, voice of an archangel, trumpet of God. There's trumpets, there's shouts. These are very public, very attention-getting. And we believe the rapture will take place after the tribulation, which started with the uh, ascension and will end with the second coming. And we believe then... Uh, it happens at the same time as the actual second coming of Christ and saints will be caught up to be part of a massive welcoming party for the coming king. As one scholar explains, those words, to meet the Lord in the air, translate a term used only two other times in the New Testament. In the parable of the ten maidens in Matthew 25, the maidens are called out to meet the groom and join in the marriage procession. And then in Acts 28, outside of Rome, we see the Christian brothers come to meet Paul and escort him back into the city. This word is a technical term, which means it always has the same meaning all the time, as opposed to a common term, which can have lots of different meanings. This is a technical term for meeting a visiting dignitary, a delegation honored the visitor by going out of the city and meeting him and his entourage on the road and together the entire party would proceed back into the city with great fanfare. It's very similar to the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. People came with Jesus from Bethany. Some came out of Jerusalem. When he heard he was coming, they went out to meet him and welcome him and the whole group came into the city. And this view of the rapture sees the Tribulation period is a time of purifying the church, separating true and false believers, just as persecution has done in the past and just as persecution is doing today. And the important thing, at least in my mind, is that when we die, we are caught up with Christ and we live beyond the grave. So 
That's important to know. That's the third thing. Fourth, don't miss these important words. They're easy to read over. And so we will always be with the Lord. That's the great prize. That's the ultimate goal. On this great day, we'll no longer have to search for God. We'll uh, no longer feel alone. We'll never again feel like our prayers aren't getting past the ceiling. And we'll never be afraid and we'll never feel lost because we will be with the Lord. Furthermore, we'll be caught up together with them, meaning those brothers and sisters who've already died, who've gone before us. So there'll be this great reunion, not only with Christ, but also with our brothers and sisters in Christ. The invisible church, all true believers of all time and all places, becomes the visible church with Christ. And all the people in Christ will be with Christ. And we get to be there with them. And because that's true, then we are to be encouraged by gospel truth. Encouraged by gospel truth. Verse 18, therefore, encourage one another with these words. These words are encouraging words. Certainly we'll have some questions. The idea of the souls of those who have died remaining alive with Christ in some sort of embodied form the bodies of those who are still alive meeting together in the air. I understand that's all a little hard to grasp. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul explains it a little more. Uh, verses 51 and 52. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. It seems that this gathering of the saints, the dead will receive their imperishable bodies. And those who are caught up from the earth will be transformed or changed into these new bodies instantly. And surely someone is wondering, what kind of bodies will these bodies be? Will they be old or young? Will we be able to recognize our family and friends? And there's been endless debate on these issues. But based on what we know in the Bible, it seems these new bodies will be ageless. They won't be worn down by disease or decay or infirmities, all of which are the effects of sin. In other words, they'll be different from what we know now. Actually, they'll be different from what we can even conceive of, although they'll still be recognizable. Paul likens this difference to the difference between the seed that's planted in the ground and what actually results from planting that seed. Our new bodies will be different, will be better than our current bodies. Amen? Oh, come on, you can do better now. Yeah? Huh? New bodies better than the current bodies? You don't want that? Right? Amen? Okay. You know, one time I said, we don't know what the new bodies are going to look like. I mean, you could look like this. And everybody thought that was like the most discouraging thing I'd ever said. But you know, if you've ever gone to a reunion, you know, some of you have gone to high school, college reunions, family reunions, some time has gone by. Sometimes you don't recognize people, but one time we're close friends. And so we're all a little concerned we'll get to heaven and we're not going to recognize family members or close friends or saints of old. 
But I think we get to know people in a much deeper way. We'll know the person rather than simply knowing what they look like, rather than knowing the form they inhabit. In other words, I believe I will recognize you, not your form. In 1 Corinthians 13, Paul reflects on the future with these words, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. And Paul is saying all this stuff because he wants to encourage us. Well, think about it this way. When you're headed on vacation, a lot of you have taken a vacation this summer, and you're going someplace you've never been before. Well, you find yourself preoccupied. You're looking for road signs and exit numbers and landmarks, and you get to your destination, but you kind of miss the joy of the journey. On the other hand, if you're traveling someplace where you've been many times before, you tend to notice more what's around you. You see the sights, you enjoy the beauty, you notice the changes in the terrain, you see the people. Joanne and I just went to the beach in South Carolina. We've been going to the same beach for 12 years now. And so we're familiar with the drive. And as we get off the highways and start heading into our little beach town, we drive through a tree canopy. And I got a picture of that. So there it is. It's a tree canopy. The trees have overgrown the road. It's like driving through a tunnel of trees. There are live oak trees. That's Spanish moss hanging down. And we go through this tunnel of trees and you know you're getting close. It's like you finally get there and you're like, the journey's almost over. We're almost there. And we roll down the windows and you can just feel the stress blow off in the ocean breeze. And we're just driving, sitting there, and we smile. I think that's what meeting the Lord will be like. We're going to enter this tunnel of trees, and we'll know we're getting close. And our burdens will drop off, and the stress will blow away in an ocean breeze of pure grace. And we'll smile. And knowing that, and knowing what's to come, enables us to face what's here now. Because what's here now is not easy. Life is messy. I wish it weren't. But somewhere along the way, we'll run the full gamut of human experience. We'll face tragedy and discouragement. We'll be overwhelmed and want to give up. And instead of waking up in the morning and saying, this could be the day when Christ comes back, we'll wake up and say, I can't believe I have to face another day. We want to somehow cocoon ourselves away from all the pain. What then? Well, we're still a part of the company of faith. You still have all these folks to encourage you. We still have the same sure hope. And we can walk alongside of one another and remind one another constantly that the pain of this life has an end. There's a day coming when Christ comes again to be crowned King of Kings and Lord of Lords, when he will wipe away every tear, when justice will be meted out fairly and everything will be set right, when God's new heaven and earth will come and this place will be what God always intended it to be. And in the midst of tragedy and struggle, we can stand with each other and we can say, Jesus, the one who died and rose again, the one who is coming again, 
is our hope. This is the one in whom we place our faith. And when we fully understand the glorious hope that's given to us, when by faith and the testimony of God's word and the reality of what he's already done for us, and we look down the road and anticipate that day when he'll come again, we get liberated from the slavery of ourselves and the slavery of the drudgery of life and the slavery of the fear of death because we're living in a stream of history that points towards that great event of Christ's return. Paul wants us to understand that if we know where we're going when we die, we can find courage for life here and now. If we understand that death isn't the end of the story, but it's simply a turn on the road to our ultimate destination, then death loses its sting. If we understand that Christ will one day return, we can spend less time trying not to die and more time actually living. And all of that is good to know. But Paul wasn't sure the Thessalonians knew this as well as they should. And to be honest, I'm not sure that we know this as well as we should. Therefore, I think each of us needs to answer this very hard question. How do you encourage people who've lost everything? How do you encourage people who've lost everything? By any stretch of the imagination, it has been a tough week. Well, we've been getting wrapped around the axle by debates over masks and vaccines, the rest of the world seems to be falling apart. I posted to our church Facebook group, if you're not on it, you can get on it, um, a prayer request for Hayward County, North Carolina, in western North Carolina. This county's been devastated by flooding. 10 to 15 bridges washed away. As of Friday, there were four recorded deaths and five people were still missing and unaccounted for. Hundreds of search and rescue volunteers are going door to door along the Pigeon River. They've already rescued more than 100 people. This is the county where our church sent a mission team to serve with the Carolina Mountain Mission in 2018 and 2019. Any of you on either of those trips? Okay, got a handful of folks who were on those trips. We drove over some of those bridges that are no longer there. And anyone who went can tell you this community is already suffering economically. We set up free food banks at the local high school and dozens of families came in search of basic necessities. And those who were there will remember that room where we set up and distributed the food is being used this morning as an emergency shelter for 11 families. How do you encourage people who've lost everything? I also posted a link on our Facebook group to give to MTW Disaster Relief in Haiti. Pounded by an earthquake, two tropical storms, Haiti suffered the loss of over 2,000 souls. Estimates have over 12,000 people injured. Over 60,000 homes have been destroyed and another 76,000 homes have been damaged and 300,000 people are currently homeless. Four health facilities completely destroyed and 20 more were damaged, made them unusable. Basically, they wiped 24 hospitals off the map. 
Many roads are broken apart by the earthquake and then washed away by the storms, so they can't get to the remote parts of the country to assess the damage and provide aid. And their president was assassinated a month ago, and many parts of the country are being run by criminal gangs in the absence of a legitimate government. How do you encourage people who've lost everything? And of course, Afghanistan. What can you say? The stories coming out of this war-torn country are heartbreaking. Afghans who have had some association with the U.S. are being slaughtered. Women and girls over 12 are being taken and sold. And Christians are being martyred this morning. There's quite a few Christian pastors and churches who've gone underground. There's a significant number of reports, many still unsubstantiated, of pastors being beheaded. People caught with a Bible app on their phone are being shot. Those who've been able to communicate with various uh, Western mission agencies have boldly stated they don't expect to survive the next two weeks. How do you encourage people who've lost everything? Josh Hanley is a pastor in the United Arab Emirates. He's been in contact with several Afghan pastors. And they have a lot of prayer requests, but he says many of them are based on 2 Thessalonians 3, verses 1 through 3. And here's their prayer request. Finally, brothers, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored as happened among you and that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men. For not all have faith, but the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. Josh asks, we pray especially for the Afghans who've had no choice but to stay, such as one brother who's already spent time in prison for his faith in Afghanistan. Josh writes, he has assured me again and again, we can trust that our Lord is mighty and will care for his children, and our hope is not in politics, but in Jesus who is the King. This is not escapism. This is biblical faith when all earthly prospects are completely bleak. And such faith brings great glory and joy to our Father in heaven. How do you encourage people who are about to lose everything? In early July, Afghan pastors and church leaders made a difficult decision. They decided to formally register their faith with the Afghan government. What an absurdity to register as Christians in an Islamic Republic that prohibits a person from converting to Christianity. And against the advice of many, these Afghan church leaders felt compelled for the sake of future generations to legally declare their true faith in Christ. They said, what about our children and grandchildren? Someone should make this sacrifice so the next generation can openly call themselves followers of Jesus. How do you encourage people who are about to lose everything? I spoke this week with a former member of our church who served in Afghanistan. He's not doing well. He said there's been a few sad days, but he knows the Lord will get him through these troubles by God's grace. 
Mark Morris, who leads a ministry called Refugee Memphis. It's a ministry in Memphis that brings the gospel and word and deed to refugees, wrote that last Sunday, as many Afghans in his congregation, he says, we open Romans 9 and we're confronted with our presumption in questioning the wisdom of a good and merciful God. He is the potter, we are his clay. And then from Romans 10, we were reminded that we build our faith on Jesus, the only cornerstone that can stand firm through the storm of the Taliban. He wrote, we got to the end of the service and our song leader chose as the final hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. As we sang the last verse, an Afghan brother came and whispered in my ear, Ashraf Ghani, Afghanistan's president, just resigned. The Taliban are now in control. And then we sang, let goods and kindred go. This mortal life also. The body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. How do you encourage people who are about to lose everything? We encourage them with the good news of Jesus' resurrection. We encourage them with the good news of Jesus' return. We encourage them with the good news of our reunion, not only with Christ, but with our brothers and sisters in Christ. We encourage them with these words of gospel truth. And he gives us these words of encouragement in the midst of our worst moments, for our darkest days, in our uncertain times, and when our hearts are most heavy. Encouragement is the antidote to unbelief. Encouragement means to strengthen each other's faith. It means being merciful to those who doubt, Jude 22. It means helping each other to hold on to the shield of faith, Ephesians 6. A commitment to encourage one another is a commitment to fight for faith together. But what does such encouragement sound like? Brother, Jesus died for your sins and rose again for your forgiveness. Be encouraged. Sister, Jesus is coming again in person with a cry of command and the voice of an archangel and the sound of the trumpet of God and he's coming to get you and to claim you and to bring you home. Be encouraged. Amen. Brother, Jesus wants to be with you now and forever. So in life or in death, we will always be with the Lord. Be encouraged. Sister, Jesus wants you to know that you belong with all the people who belong to him. Be encouraged. Jesus didn't save you to make you perfect. He saved you to make you his. This is the gospel hope that you need to have. And these words are the gospel words that you need to encourage one another with in this place, at this time, with these people in this church, you, because you are his. Therefore, think about who you're going to encourage with these words, with this gospel truth on this day. Amen. Amen. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that 
and then I'll close. Our Lord and our God, thank you that you have spoken to us by your Son. Open our eyes that we might see our sin and then see our Savior. God, our Father, we bow before you and we confess to the insecurity and fear about death. We don't want to face the worst moments or the dark days or the uncertain times, and we dread the feeling of our hearts being heavy with grief. We don't even know how to grieve, so we try to avoid it, but we can't. And so we need each other. We need brothers and sisters in Christ to come alongside us and remind us of these gospel truths that Jesus died for our sins and rose again for our forgiveness, that Jesus is coming again in person with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel and the sound of the trumpet of God. And he's coming to get us and claim us and to bring us home, that Jesus wants to be with us now and forever. So in life or in death, we will always be with the Lord that Jesus wants us to know that we belong with all the people who belong to him. Remind us again that Jesus saved us to make us his, and that these are the words that we're to encourage one another with. Grant that we may live like people called to encourage one another with these words. Teach us to respond with a greater trust in you and your word and through these commands Draw us ever closer to the one who displays them perfectly, your Son, our Savior, the Lord Jesus, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.